you let people fail safely in a veterinary clinic in order to allow them to grow? This week, we want to talk about establishing guardrails and processes that allow your team the space to grow while struggling to overcome challenges. This week on The Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to The Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine and a tough topic that we face uniquely in the medical space is how do we let our folks fail? How do we let them fail and learn and struggle so that they can grow and improve without jeopardizing our patient's safety? Well, this week we want to talk about a concept of guardrails and safe guidance and all of that kind of stuff to allow people the space to grow. But before we give them all that space, how about we introduce ourselves? As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Ernie Ward. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mom. And Becky, I know, you know, following up on last week's episode, and guys, if you haven't listened to last week's podcast, I encourage you to go go take a, a peek because we really covered a lot of issues around, you know, what happens when you promote people and expand their roles and responsibilities and they don't work out or they somehow have shortcomings and, you know, how do you handle that situation diplomatically and professionally? But this week, we want to go back and say, how do we avoid that in the first place? And, you know, many times you've heard me speak both in lectures and in articles and and on the podcast, and you've heard Becky and I talk about the concept of providing guardrails so that people, when they fail, they fall in the grass, not off the cliff. But we want to talk about some of the practical ways to apply that in your practice today, because come on, it's a new year, and hopefully you're establishing goals and and, and objectives to to change your practice this year. So Becky, maybe let's just back up a little bit, and and what, what kind of sparked this conversation to begin with? Well, if you're not familiar with veterinary teams living well, go to Facebook, check it out. Rebecca Rose is behind that. And she's just a phenomenal individual in this space who is all about veterinary teams and thriving and wellness and well-being and um, and really helping our teams be outstanding. And so she posted this article and it was interesting to me after our conversation because we've kind of had this sort of ongoing... We talked about expectations, which is really important. And then last week we talked about you know, when things don't work out and they aren't what they, they, they we thought they were going to be, how do we fix that? Or, or what are what are the best ways to move around that? And so this was an article she posted about letting your teams fail or at least struggle, right? right I should say, right. Um, in order to kind of, you know, this, the same way we let kids fall and get back up um, because that's part of the learning process. And so how do we, in our veterinary clinics, without ending up, you know, beat down on social media by clients or having some kind of malpractice lawsuit, how do we let our teams struggle to learn? Um, And it was just an interesting thought to me because we have a lot at stake, um, our clients, our business, and it's really hard to let go. There's so much micromanagement. There's so much, you know, um, helicoptering, I think, in our space but it, it it probably isn't benefiting people, but to give them that room to struggle, I don't know, it could be dangerous. So I thought it'd be an interesting conversation. And it is. And, and viewfinders, I mean, this is something I've struggled with as a practice owner for, for decades. And I've, I've landed on some some ways and, and tactics that I think have worked out really well for us. And, and certainly we're going to share some of those things today. But I want to, first of all, just outlay the fact that there's such a knee-jerk negative reaction when we talk about failure in veterinary medical practice. And 
And guys, I'm going to be the first to say you never endanger patient safety. You don't ever risk a client relationship, right? That's not what we're talking about. And it's very easy to immediately go to the worst case scenario, Becky. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, you're going to kill all your pets, right? Or, oh, you're going to run off all your clients. And that's just not what we're talking about. We're talking about, like, as, like Becky said in this article title about struggles, right? And I think that's probably a safer term. You know, I, I don't know that I completely agree with all of that because I think that people do have to sometimes come up short a little bit, you know, before they learn. I mean, we always talk about, you know, hey, when you don't win, that's sometimes how you learn the most lessons. But Becky, you know, I just want to make sure that everybody listening today understands we are not in any way jeopardizing patient safety or client relationships, right? Oh, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and so to be fair, let's be clear. If if you're a manager and you're thinking about this or listening to this, you're going to struggle and fail a right, little bit right. in doing this, right? It's like you're not immune. The, in, in helping your team struggle, you're going to struggle. So it, this is a, a 360 clinic situation. But yeah, I, I, obviously, we don't want to sacrifice patient safety. But we want to make our teams the best, and that is a very fine line to walk. Right. And so, again, we used to sort of, and, and we didn't nomen, we didn't use this type of nomenclature, but a lot of people use these terms. Like, you know, we would look at high-risk, you know, activities and low-risk activities, right? So so where could we, you know, because obviously if it's a lower risk, like you're teaching someone how to read a fecal sample, well, you know, you can give them some autonomy and space, and they may say, I think it's hookworms, and you go look at it and go, no, it's not at all. Uh, and, and that's like a safe thing. Having said that, if I'm doing a foreign body <laughs> obstruction surgery, I don't just go, hey, you never done this before, young associate? Yeah, go ahead and knock yourself out. And, you know, if you have any problems, just let somebody know. That's not what we're, you know, you get what I'm going at, Becky, right? I mean, it's, it, there's some common sense boundaries here. And this is why we settled on terminology of guardrails, right? And, and, and just to revisit that concept, what we did in our, in our especially with our, our vet techs and our veterinarians, what we would do is say, okay, here are some of our guidelines, our protocols, our processes, and you might have three or four different choices within that. So in, in, a, in a sense, we were saying, here's the car, you're behind the wheel, you have the brakes and the gas here, you get to drive on the left side, the right side, the middle, doesn't matter. But what we're going to do as an institution is create guardrails so that if you do make some kind of mistake, it's not catastrophic. So I hope that metaphor works for you, Becky. I mean, you see where I'm trying to get at. High risk, low risk, and then in implementing uh, guardrails. And I think this requires a lot of thought, preparation, planning, and work on behalf of the leaders. Oh, absolutely. And really incredible communication. Right, right. And it goes back to our expectations is, is what is the expectation? So when we say struggle, we want to be very clear of the outcome that we're looking for. And what does that struggle look like? So for example, even with your parasitology example, you know, it's a tricky one because we really can um, cause some frustration and um, we can sort of deflate our employees accidentally. And it, or honestly, what I should say is just watch them deflate themselves, right? Because we are so hard on ourselves as a population. And so 
I think part of this is understanding to what level of struggle and to what cost. Yes, good. You point. know, is it a matter of um, the, is the client waiting in the exam room while something's taking a really long time because that person is learning and struggling, um, or is it a matter of we do it first and then they go behind us, or is it a matter of that's part of the progression? Right. And I think you know, again, and, and I've talked about this so many times where the expectation of a technician versus a veterinarian right out of school is really different. And we, we need to think about that first and foremost about, you know, how long should it take them to get up to speed? But additionally, how are we communicating? You know, we, you know, you said last week, not everyone is a natural born educator. And so is there somebody in the clinic or are they being helped by the person in the clinic who can help them the most, who is explaining it well, who is utilizing patients and, um, and are we leaning into how they learn? You know, we have this tendency to hand people a sheet of paper that has steps. Um, maybe we've got some 1954 pictures of folding a pack that are, <laughs> you know, all kind of oh, one color because right. they've been in the sun so long. You know, is sometimes it's like, I see you struggling. Instead of thinking the person is the problem, is what is causing them to struggle? Right. It's the process, right? I mean, you probably don't have a system in place. So this is why, again, getting back to that parasitology you know, example, the way we did it in simplest terms for every task or, or job, duty, whatever you want to call it within our clinics, we had a system of training materials, right? So like you said, some were probably 1954 black and white photos, but a lot were just sort of, you know, our written step-by-step -step thing, how to do it, right? So there's a training foundation. Then the next step was you were going to, quote unquote, be signed off on being being able to do, read a, a fecal float, if you will. And so that would be a, a system of you'd have to do 10 or 15 or 20, depending on the specific duty or, or task, in the presence of a mentor, right, of a supervisor, of someone who actually has been signed off and knows this, and we trust them. And so you, you would do this together collaboratively, right? So you work together. Hey, look at this. This is a hookworm. Oh, look at this. This is not. And so you'd move forward that process. And then once you did your 10 or 20 of those, you know, partnership, mentorship, supervised uh, tasks, then you would start to do them on your own, in which case you would be checked up afterwards. So, so guys, Again, whatever system you choose to use, you need to have a system. And, and the reason this is important is because, A, we we have to be more efficient. We know, as we talk about almost every week for the past seven years, we're short-staffed. It's hard to hire staff. It's hard to keep staff in many instances. And so we've got to make sure that we are optimizing their efforts. And so training increases efficiency just plain and simple. The other thing is there's also a cross-training element here too, because what can happen even amongst veterinarians or registered veterinary technicians, Becky, is you wind up having this one person who controls something, right? Like they're the only person that can read the, the fecal floats or they're the only person that can assist in a complicated abdominal surgery, right? And so I don't think that's also efficient. And I think that can also lead to lots of other problems that we've talked about on the on the podcast before. But Becky, talk, I mean, any any other thoughts on like setting up the foundation? Because I think that's the key. When you want, a, when you are going to give people space to struggle, to fail sometimes, you've got to also have a system that allows that, right? And I think that's where a lot of people make the first mistake because they just go, hey, go do it. Oh, you screwed it up. Well, that's, you're never doing that again instead of actually having a process. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the biggest problem that we do, and it, and it sounds like you did it in your clinic and it it's so typical, but we tend to use paperwork, writing words. And it's like the, it's like the lowest comprehension way of learning. 
I don't think we ask people enough, how do you learn best? How can we help you learn best? And can we tailor our training in a way that does help you? I think most people learn by doing, right? And so having, obviously, we have to have some kind of checklist to go back to. There has to be some kind of written standard. But I think so often, you know, I think about all the words I see around clinics. And it's not a way of embracing different abilities and, and learning styles. And so I think the number one thing that we need to do is to say, first of all, how comfortable are you with this? And second of all, how do you best learn? And then the other one is, how do you best receive feedback? Right. Good point. And because some people do prefer feedback in writing because then they can be reflective over it and think about it. Some people are like, I need it in the moment. Like, I need you to tell me when I'm messing it up so that I know exactly what I'm messing up and I can fix it there. Um, And some people are like, I need a verbal conversation so I can ask questions Um, And that's how I I best receive feedback. And I think that's the other problem because what we know scientifically is when the emotional center of the brain is firing, the verbal center shuts down. And so then you get in a situation where you, your brain is feeling embarrassed, right? You're feeling like a failure. You're feeling like you've messed up. You're kind of the target right now. And you can't think through that process enough to do things better. It's like typing in front of people when they're watching. Right. I can type like 80 words a minute by myself. If you're watching me, uh, 40, you know, <laughs> right, <laughs> and I'm right. going to keep messing it up. So I think that is another thing that we need to to help our... And, and then, you know, come back and say, how is this working for you? Is this training process working for you? Is this mentor working for you? Is the What could we do better? And I know that that sounds, you know kind of hoo-ha, woo-wee for a lot of people, but it's it's servant leadership. It's giving the people the tools that they need to be successful instead of stuffing them in this box that you've created that's the only way you have for them. And so I think, one, it gives us the tools to say, okay, you and I had a conversation and you told me this was the best way that you learned. You told me this is how you receive the best feedback. And I'm still seeing this struggle. So now what is next? Like, like I can come back and confidently say, I met the needs that you told me you had. I'm doing the best I can to meet those needs. What do we need to adjust? Because I want you to be successful. It, we all win if you're successful. And then, you know, the other thing is making it a safe place to screw up in general, which right, is right. not carrying on in front of everybody. It's not putting it out in front of everybody. It's it's having a process and constant communication. So honestly, I think if we backed up and worked more personally with our new employees or just in a training process and made sure that we were approaching <laughs> it in a way, you know, I talk about our employees love languages, <laughs> then we set them up for success. If we're constantly stuffing people in this box of learning and this box of doing things and this this box that we have, that's the only way we know how to be educators, then you know, we, we kind of set them up for that struggle and that failure. And it's, it's on us. It's not even their opportunity to struggle. They're struggling with the tools we gave them, not the task. Yeah. I, I love that so much. And guys, that, honestly, that's worth a rewind in my opinion. And, and again, Beck, you can see why, uh, like, of course there's the didactic aspect. I mean, they have to have the written standards and the steps and all that stuff, but you can see why we relied so heavily on the collaborative peer to peer 
teaching, training, feedback mechanism, right? That's why we had those first 10 to 20, you did it with a supervisor, if you will, right? I mean, I think that's so important. And, and guys, I know a lot of you are probably listening to this and going, well, that sounds great. That's just so unrealistic. Guys, it's not. It's it's completely achievable. It requires a lot of work. I did it firsthand. You know, we did it firsthand. And, and I'll tell you, a lot of the corporates are, you know, they're going back and looking at some of that stuff that I was writing 20, 25 years ago, and, and they're implementing it, right? And, and of course, we can use technology to enhance it. So, I mean, there's so many better ways to do it. In fact, I was just meeting with a, a fantastic veterinarian in the UK not too long ago, Becky, a guy named Dr. Bob Partridge, who's a dental specialist. He has a company called Training Progress, which does a lot of what we, you know, and look, we'd all, you know, we were all running around the same circles and he was going lectures and I was giving lectures at the day. And, and they just took really what we did and made it into a, a really elegant online experience, right? All the, the checks and the balances and the, and the training and, and the mentors and blah, blah, blah. So there's, there are people out there that are doing it. So again, if you're listening today and you're saying that would be nice, but no way that would ever happen in my clinic, you need to just, first of all, stop right there and say, why not? And, and, and just, I don't know, Becky, how do we get beyond that? Because that's just not reality. You can do this. Yeah, I guess that, that's kind of my first question is why not? Like, right, and right. what do you have to lose? Right, right. What's the victory speech when you run all of your new hires off or you don't have a successful training program? Like, what do you get from not trying to communicate better or to to serve your employees so that they are, their needs are met, that they're happy and that they're capable? And, you know, I think like we, on the floor at Dove is a perfect example Um you know, they have tons of training videos, really interactive um, platform. Like you said, there's stuff out of the UK. There's so much access to training at this time. You can even talk to your different reps, right? Like right, your dental right. x-ray reps, right? You can talk to your laboratory reps. They can bring experts in who can help do continuing education, do some hands-on training, do some hands-on mentoring. Like if you are creative and when your employees see you trying to help them meet their needs, oh, help them be priceless, successful, priceless. number one, they're going to be so thrilled. It's, it's going to be experience that they never had. But the other thing is <clears throat> that sets the tone. So then when new employees come in, they're in a helpful mindset. They're in a servant mindset. They're like, oh, I struggled with this too. Let me show you. We don't fall into this insecure, there's not room for everybody, ha ha, look at them, they don't get it, what an idiot, um, and I feel safe and secure because that's how I have to feel. And that's the problem with so many of our clinics because we have this toxicity, we have this insecurity, we have this super chicken complex, and what happens is people let other people struggle in a spiteful way, Right. not my right. problem, not my job, instead of letting them struggle in a way that they set themselves up for success because they figured out themselves. You know, when it goes back to the mod the model of, you know, when, when kids walk and they're first learning, we cheer them on, you know, if they fall down, it's like, Oh no, get back up. You can do it. And we cheer them on. Um, and somehow as adults, we stop doing that. And so when we see somebody taking baby steps, we should be cheering them on. And when we see them fall down, we help them back up and we tell them it's okay and to keep on moving forward. And I think that we have to kind of change our mindset with what and, and be prepared, think ahead, what happens when this does not go right. So, right. you know, are we, it, 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 we're, we've automated so many of our systems 
you know, is it, do we do a fecal flow in clinic and then we send a sample out to make sure, you know, there are so many systems that we can put in place and we become so consumed with time, right? It takes too long. It takes too long. It takes too long. Um, But learning takes a long time. And I think when it comes to our own pets and our own patients, we, we want them to have the best, the, the most time, the best care. And we don't want to do anything wrong. We've talked about this in the past, like, oh my gosh, probably six years ago. Um, but have a plan for when things do go wrong. Have a plan when there is a mistake and how to build that person back up, make sure nothing bad happens and to say, okay, I, instead, I'm not going to point it back out. You're just going to keep trying. Um, and I think the other thing about this is this generosity. There are so many times when I've worked in the clinic where something cool comes along. It's like, make sure we save that for so-and-so so they get a chance to see that they've not seen that before. So I think when we're really open about what we're learning, what we're struggling, what we're growing with, um, you know, it, it helps us to encourage each other when that's the mindset like oh let's let let's go grab so and so they've been practicing this right um because we're supporting each other instead of having this like i'm just going to get it done it's faster and they'll take forever doing it yeah and and that's really what also why i want to finish up with you guys today a little bit about how do we give the that feedback and and i'll, I'll give you a couple of examples and 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 in my own life and then what i did with with my future veterinarians and vet techs and so when i first graduated uh, i took a job for only 14 months and then I started my first clinic. But, um, you know, I had the classic situation where if I was doing something and maybe it wasn't as fast as it should be and maybe it wasn't as good or perfect as it should be, what would happen is my boss, who is a veterinarian, would just step in and say, just stop, just stop, 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 stop. That's all wrong. Let, let me do it. Right. And, and they would just that didn't help. <laughs> you know, I mean, that didn't help me at all. Right. I mean, they, they fixed the problem. They, they, they stopped the bleeding, whatever, but I didn't learn, you know, in fact, I became, I, I became really, uh, you know, angry. <laughs> I guess I'll just be honest with you yeah. guys. You know, I, I was angry because I was like, come on, man, you know, what's so wrong? Because I didn't know exactly what mistake I was making. I knew I was struggling. I knew it wasn't as fast or as efficient, but yeah, I didn't know. So uh, fast forward to whenever I hired my first associate and this, um, young lady was, you know, fresh out of school, new grad, and we were going through and I was teaching her, you know, not teaching her, but, you know, reviewing how to do space. And this was a, a case where it was one of her first or second, and she kept struggling to to get the the ovary, right? So you guys know what I'm talking about. You take a spay hook in there and sometimes you're fishing around, you can't find it. And she was really struggling. But her classic mistake was she was crossing her hands. And guys, I, I'll tell you, I, I was that I was that very strange, geeky vet. When I started my first practice, I would videotape myself uh, doing spays and neuters, reviewing hours of it because I didn't have anybody. And I would look at my hand motions. And I used to always talk about the economy of motion, right? I would try to m- make my, my movements as efficient as possible. And I know that sounds super geeky, but that's what we did. We also did all the recordings of our exams. So I had a tape recorder. I mean, blah, 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 you guys. That, But that's what I did. I needed data to analyze to improve. So now I could do this for my young associate. And so she was crossing over. And I, I remember sitting there the first time watching her do this and go, this is pointless. She, she totally doesn't get how to do it. But I kept letting her miss. You know what I'm saying, Becky? And what I did was yeah. she, I waited till she got frustrated. So I could actually, you know, she, we were all masked up, but you could tell in the eyes, you know, she was getting angry. She's oh, like, well, yeah. I can't find it. Where's the damn thing? And Dr. Ward's looking at me. And, and I remember saying, okay, let's just take a pause, right? 
And, uh, and again, this is a low stakes situation. Nobody's dying or at risk. And I said, what do you think is the problem here? And she gave me a whole host of things, none of which were what I was digging at. And I was like, let's look at our hand position. How, where are your hands? And so then she, the light bulb went off. She was crossing over, had a terrible angle on the opposite side of the abdomen, right? I mean, and so once, once we kind of gave her time to reflect, she goes through her list, and then I say, here's actually what you should do, and voila, it unlocked efficiency for her, you know? And I'll tell you, you know, she wound up working with us for four or five years, and then, you know, husband relocated. I, I, every time, almost, I, I see her, you know, from time to time at conferences, and Becky, she always reminds me of that. <laughs> you know, she's like, you know, you help me out so okay, much. That's su- yes, that's such a good point, too, right? Because you unlocked, you, so, so you did a couple things in that whole story. Number one, you talked about how you helped yourself be successful. And I think that's an important part of this too, right? Is if you're struggling with something, how, how, like you, what you did for yourself was exactly what we're talking about. You figured out how you learn best. You needed to watch yourself do it. Right. And to, to pay attention to the movements. So that's a perfect example. If it's like, hey, you make me really nervous when you're watching me. Okay, no problem. I'm just going to set my phone up here. I'm going to leave the room. You do what you got to do. And then if anything goes wrong, we'll review it later. Whatever. Right, right. Just exactly. as an example. That's a great idea. The other thing that you did is, like, again, you empowered her to think through it. You empowered her to go through what she knew. But you, you just took one thing and gave her the tools to be successful on her own. And that is so meaningful that she will always remember that because it was a kind gesture and it changed everything. I think spays are such a perfect example for veterinarians, spays and neuters, but spays especially because there are things that can go wrong. They're going to drop a pedicle. They know they're going to do it sometime in their life and things are going to go terribly and it's going to be scary. And so I think going into it, um, Sometimes the more simple things are, the more stressful they are because I should have this done in 15 minutes. I sh- I, I can't find the ovaries and, I, and I'm going to always have to find the ovaries. What's the problem here? I, I just think that it's such a neat opportunity to reflect on the impact that you can make when you empower somebody through the process, when you work with them to be successful and like when you're not over, like you said, just stopping them in the middle and saying you're doing it all wrong and you let her struggle a little bit. And then like, let's think through this instead of stop, 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 just move and you're incapable. And kind of that's been the theme. Like I said, through a couple of our podcasts where it's like, we have a tendency to throw in the towel. We're so worried about time. We're so worried about energy that we don't help the, our own people. And when we're talking about this shortage and we're talking about mental health and we're talking about making teams that have great work cultures, all of this plays into it so importantly. It's foundational. Yeah. And again, guys, the way you as a leader uh, treat your staff when they are struggling or are not meeting expectations, that sets the tone, as Becky said, for the entire team, how they interact, right? And so I think what what really happens when, you know, when people think it's magical or they think it's BS, right? They, when you talk about this, but when you're in that culture that's supportive and nurturing and positive, like you, you know it and you appreciate it, yeah. but then you foster it also. I mean, you you don't, you know, it's it's rare 
because then you're going against the cultural norms and you have the entire, you know, momentum of the institution or the organization going against you. You're like, you want to be the jerk. Well, everybody's going to shut you down for being the jerk and you're going to be out of there pretty quickly. So it, it's, it's so much bigger than just that one moment of teaching or allowing that struggle and then not stepping in and overtaking because that signals and shows everyone around you how to do that. Right, Becky? I mean, so now the two receptionists up front and the one who didn't, couldn't answer the question on the phone, the other person's not like, you know, just hand me the phone next time. That other person is now saying, hey, okay, so where, where did you struggle with that? How, how can I help you with that? Right? That's, that's culture to me. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it's important to recognize that there's going to be struggle throughout your career. So I think if we are very open with what we've got going on and what we need, people can see that on all levels, there's going to be a little bit of struggle. And then the other thing I was thinking about is there's less likelihood that they'll walk away. Right. People become afraid to try new things or they just say, I, I, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to do that because they don't want to be picked on. They don't right. want to fail. So they just hand it off to somebody else. And then it's a skill that they never learn. And like you said, then you have one person in the clinic who owns that skill and they're the only one that can do it. And it doesn't, it doesn't help anything. It doesn't help anyone. So I think it's a really important thing to, and to, again, as a trainer, as an educator, as a manager, whatever your role is, it's really important to think ahead when you're training or educating or working with a tool. What is the outcome that we're looking for? And how will I help them get there? And be aware of how much you're going to let them struggle, how much, what's safe and the right environments. It's a really proactive situation. You are really have to be thinking ahead. Even as a manager, looking at your calendar for the day and saying, okay, who have I got on staff and who? what have we got going on? Do we have any opportunities here? And again, you're right. If, if you don't think it's going to work in your clinic, it's not because you're not going to make yeah, it work. Right. You're not going to do the things that it, that it takes. But I would ask yourself, what is it going to cost you to not even try um, and empower your teams with the opportunity to say, this is how I learn. This is how I succeed. Um, and I'm struggling with this. How, how do you best recommend I be successful? I mean, it, it, you have so much to lose when you're not helping your teams through these processes. And in this small community, you will quickly become a, 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 have a reputation of, of, a, of a difficult place to work or have a difficult team to work with, and you'll have a hard time filling roles. Right. And there's no upward mobility, no pathways to change roles, responsibilities, titles, all that stuff. So, I mean, it is so limiting. And guys, I'll leave you today as we finish up this conversation. You know, I think... Number one, I love what Becky said. I mean, struggles, failures, you know, not meeting expectations, that's a normal part of life. And I think you have to embrace discomfort. And I think too often we think everything should be easy. In fact, a lot of people, I think, have this misconception, Becky, that, you know, if it's not easy, then I shouldn't be doing it or I'm not capable of doing it. And I just, you know, I, I constantly challenge myself, you know, and and one of the ways I do it, Becky, I mean, as you know, and, and a lot of people that know me know is through taking on different physical types of challenges, right? Whether it's marathons or Ironmans or paddling, you know, out in the ocean for hours. I mean, you know, there are these things I do to get into 
a place where, A, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I'm terrible at it, right? I mean, I've, I've never done it. I'm failing constantly. I'm an idiot. Look at me. He's the kook out there, right? So I put myself in that place of discomfort. And then I expect pain, right? So whether it's, you know, delayed onset of muscle soreness, right? Or whether it's, you know, just showing up and, and being in the bottom half of the race, you know, whatever. But I put myself in those areas and then that allows me to grow, right? Because again, you know, and it's not like, you know, you just abandon it the first bit of, of pain. Like if it's something you truly want, then that's just part of the journey. And I think that's really important for you to, to, to take into this new year. And again, we're recording this in January of, of 2024. It's important to say, you know what, whatever it is that I want to accomplish, whatever it is I want to change in my life, I expect setbacks. I expect struggles. I expect some pain, but if it's worth it, and again, that's where you have to start. If it's worth it, if the why is genuine and authentic, if the why is there, then the how becomes the easy part. Right, Becky? I mean, you know, it, this isn't rocket science. Yeah. <laughs> no, it really isn't. It just takes some time. It takes some thoughtfulness and it takes some teamwork. And I think that that is, it's a, it's a slow change if it's not your current way of doing things. But I think, you know, communicating and working with your teams and, and, pre-planning is such an important thing and, and you're right people are have a hard time being uncomfortable and you can make it a safe place or you can make it miserable for them but it's it's gonna it's gonna show in your bottom line either way that's right guys we'd like to hear about how you embrace the struggle and failure in your team do you have a phase training program do you have mentors do you step in and overtake or do you sit back and watch and, and reflect guys we'd really like to hear your thoughts on this because i think this is one of those conversations that every clinic needs to have on loop. You know, Becky, I mean, this is one of those things that yeah. it is a perennial issue and you got to constantly, it's got to be top of mind and a constant, you know, focus or, you know, you just won't see the benefit. So Becky, if people want to share or ask us questions, where can they do that? You guys can reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram at Veterinary Viewfinder or send us an email at veterinaryviewfinder at gmail.com. That's right, guys. Embrace the struggle and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.